You're listening to the Thoroughly Good Classical Music Podcast, a conversation between audience and artists intended to demystify the classical music and opera art form. If you haven't already, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast. It's available via Spotify and Audioboom. That way, you'll hear about the latest podcasts as they become available. Be sure to follow Thoroughly Good on Twitter or on Facebook, and you'll find the blog at thoroughlygood.me. And there's one more thing to mention. This podcast relies on the generosity of others to keep it going. If you're someone who has supported the podcast already, be assured that you will receive, eventually, a Thoroughly Good badge as a measure of my thanks. If you're someone who likes the idea of receiving a badge, or indeed joining the throng of discerning individuals who have supported the podcast already, please head over to the Thoroughly Good blog at thoroughlygood.me, where you'll find a donate button, Anything you can spare would be very much appreciated. number 44 features the tenor Toby Spence. He has worked with many of the major opera houses across the world and with conductors Rattle, Nelson's Addis and Harnencore amongst others. That's all I feel comfortable really saying. Singers are as I scribbled down in my notebook before he and I met on Monday the 17th of June slightly weird. By that I mean they're not really in my classical music or opera universe, they are a different type of performer living to a necessarily different set of rules and as a result I feel as though they are set apart from the rest of us. If sometimes I feel I'm not part of the classical music world when I interview people by virtue of the fact that I'm not a performer myself, then that distinction is even more pronounced when I'm talking to a singer. And yet there's an irony or a paradox, I'm not entirely clear which it is, to all of this. In talking to artists, the intent of these conversations is to close the gap between audience and performer. Talking to somebody like Toby, 
I'm reminded about how the perceived gap actually adds to the mystique that contributes to the magic and wonder of a live performance. There are times then when, as an audience member, I want to preserve that distance. It's an odd thing. I'm either a picky individual or just plain contrary. Toby is singing at the Royal Festival Hall on Friday the 28th of June in a performance of Beethoven's Mammoth, Mrs. Solemnis, with David Hill, who conducts the Orchestra of the Age of Enlightenment, and the Bach Choir, and a host of other performers, some of whose names I cannot and will not pronounce. In this podcast, we talk about Beethoven, the prospect of the Beethoven anniversary, which personally I'm terrified of. Uh, We also talk about Bromptons and the rise and value of amateurism in music performance. Where are we, please? We are in the offices of my agency, which is Askenas Holt, which is on Fetter Lane in the city of London. Uh, it's not quite what I was expecting it to be. I was expecting comfy sofas, velvet drapes, people in smoking jackets, that kind of thing. It's not really that, is it? Welcome to the new corporate world of classical music. Right, OK. Uh, I mean, it's very comfortable, and it's nice to be in a boardroom. Uh, you get the feeling they 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 think here yeah. <laughs> and talk <laughs> Which I think. and have meetings. <laughs> yes, and it's it's all changing. Classical music has to change, and I think uh, a company like Askenas is leading the charge. There's a very forward-thinking chap called Donna, who is the boss of Askenas Holt, and he is always thinking about the market and touring, and thinks about classical music very much in international terms, in sectors. And as I say, different markets. He's a very clever chap. What do you look for then? I mean, you know, I'm not an artist, but and I my my assumption, my my cynical assumption is that an, that a manager gets in the way, but obviously that's not the case. What what does an artist look for in a it, in a manager? It depends on the artist and it depends on the manager. So uh, when I came to Askenas, I was uh, 23 years old. Uh, I was still at music college. And I had just been, I'd just been to the final of the Ferrier competition, Kathleen Ferrier competition in the Wigmore Hall. And I was spotted by someone and they started to talk about me to various agents and the agents came knocking. Um, tenors are rare and I was 23 and showing promise. And uh, I met them all and Robert was the only one of the people that I met who said that... Um, he couldn't make my career, that I would have to make my career, um, but that he would back me up and support me all the way and give me good advice. And I like that honesty. So I went with him. And I'm still with the same, same agency. And Robert was true to his word. His advice was great. But he also is, was a very genial man. He's no longer here at the company. In fact, he's no longer alive. Um, he's dearly missed. Uh, and... I miss his advice and I miss his projections because in a career like mine in opera, you're always looking three, four years in advance. And Robert was excellent at charting a path that I was able to walk down quite smoothly without sort of hiccups and interruptions. So he was able to judge me and say, okay, so in two, three years' time, four years' time, you will be doing this, you'll be doing that, you'll be doing that, as the voice develops, if you take care of it. And sure enough, he was on the money most of the time. I didn't... Okay, so the first thing that... The first thing that I didn't tell you was that the point of having the the podcast and the work that we do is that we stumble on stuff, and I didn't expect you to tell me that. The thing that I've learned so far is 
that surprises me is that you have to think three or four years in advance. Mm. Why, why is that? That's specific to opera. And it's to do with, first of all, the costings of it. Um, and it's to do with the long-term planning of it. So they start, because of the opera houses run on a very tight schedule and on a very tight budget. And so what they do is they nail down their planning as far in advance as they can. They get their uh, director and their conductor on board probably five years in advance on a big project if it's a new production. Then they have the uh, showing of the model and the designs about four years in advance. Then they start to plan how they're going to fit it into their season. Then they start to look at what they're going to juxtapose it with on the stage. You can't have two Verdi's running at the same time because you just won't sell. Um, And uh, so they also, whilst they've got that going, the director wants to know who's going to be in his production so he can start thinking about how he's going to play and think about the movement and the, the, the style of drama. <clears throat> so that's why it gets booked up four years in advance. And what does that mean for you then? <coughs> I mean, well, it means that I can go to my bank manager and say, <laughs> can I have a loan? And he right. says, can I, can I see what, what, what money you've got coming in? And I can show him. Um, but that's on a very practical level. Well, yes, that's, that's kind of... It gives I'm, me a I'm certain security, but a mental security as well, a sense that you know, my life will be all right. I know an actor very well. And the life of an actor is I don't know what they're going to be doing next week. And I couldn't live like that, you know, with knowing the security that I get from living as I do. Um, to go from week to week seems oh, unthinkable to me. Why the difference? Because as an outsider, I see you as obviously, I don't see you just as an actor, but essentially it is a theatrical world. Mm. Um, why the difference? Well, voices um, are, do develop in specific ways. Uh, there's more competition. There are very, or rather, it's more competitive. There are fewer singers, and there are fewer tenors. That's for sure. Um, and the actors are to a penny, and they don't have to be. You can. Ha- there isn't such a thing as a tenor actor, or a. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's all character, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Uh, so they can, just pluck from, the field just on the, you know, at the moment when they're about to do it, and they do do that. Did you know when you were 23 that you were being uh, scouted? Did you seek it out? Uh, no, I didn't. I, I expected it. I, I put myself up for competitions and for scholarships, um, knowing that that was the promotion I had to do, even though I hated doing it. Um, that was the way to get yourself seen and heard. What did you hate about it? It's um, exposure, and it also comes with risk. You know, competitions are uh, a, a great opportunity to show what you can do, but they also carry a certain risk. You know, singers don't always have uh, good days. They can have bad days that are out of their control for a cold or for whatever reason. And just not only not be noticed, but actually be noticed to be not very good. Um, so, and that goes, you know, for, for any instrument as well. Um, so, it made me very nervous to put myself in that arena, and singing on the Wigmore stage uh, for the first time at that young age was really tense. Making, I mean, it was. <laughs> I will remember walking out there and thinking, "What am I doing here?" Yeah, but so quite a lot of imposter syndrome. Though. Yeah, <laughs> yes, quite a lot. Yeah. Uh, was that because of the anticipation of Wigmore Hall? 
Well, no, we shouldn't say the Wigmore Hall, should we? They're quite particular about it. Wigmore Hall. Hall. Yeah. Um, I mean, was it like... I mean, it does carry a stigma, doesn't it? We know a that. stigma? Yeah. <laughs> it, it really does. It's, uh, it's Interesting word. <laughs> it is such a vaunted and wonderful stage to be on and the sound in there. And you asked me, you know, what, 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 a, what makes a, a good place to sing uh, and the answer is um, the audience uh, the quality of the audience when you look out there and you feel that they're not just listening but they're listening knowingly and and intelligently in an informed way and so you can take risks you can make decisions and you know that they will have meaning because they'll be in, within context that's a good audience the best audience I've ever been exposed to was in Moscow where they just love their music and they read the sleeve notes and they take musicianship and they take composers seriously as a sort of integral part to history. You know, history for Russia is, is as cultural as it is bellicose. And the, the, it's fascinating to see that audience watching, listening and applauding at the end as if they mean it, you know. It's great. Um, you talk about risk-taking... Or rather, you talk about decision making. That's what you referred to. I wonder where, what is the last point as a deci- as a performer that you're making a decision? You know, I am. My assumption is that you would make a decision in a rehearsal <clears throat> to do something in a different way. Would you make a decision before you step out onto the stage? Yeah, yeah, always. And in fact, it's it's a very good thing to do for me because it gives you a focus. If you go out onto a stage with the intention of repeating what you did last time. Then it can fall flat. You can, you can, it, 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 it can come out underpowered in a way. Um, and I, by power, I don't mean volume. I just mean lacking intensity. So to go home, think about what you did that night, analyze the the narrative, the drama, the way you you portrayed it and carried it, um, and be honest with yourself. You know what wasn't good, what what, what didn't work. How can I improve that? Um, and then go back with decisions. Write them down. Take them as notes and then try to implement them in the situation. Um, so the answer to your question is, really late. <laughs> really late. <laughs> right, right, okay. okay. And is that reflected in other areas of your life? I'm not probing. I'm, uh, no, I'm, I'm quite what... organised, and, and, and I, I like to feel like I'm on top of things, um, because of that sort of headspace and clarity that, that you get when you're in that position. Um, but... Uh, I mean, I, I also like to, to a certain amount of extempore in my life as well. So the ability to be flexible. And I think that's part of dynamicism. Um, and, you know, I'd probably stretch for that as well. So by being organised, you afford yourself the opportunity to make decisions and take decisions quite late in the day. Yeah, I mean, I think classical Sorry, music... late in the day. That, yeah, that's, yeah, that's really fine, that's I mean. fine, that's fine. I think classical music struggles against the impression that it's a museum art form. Um, and that, you know, that, 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 that the pieces of music that are venerated and performed sort of live in glass cases, and we, t- and we come at them with kid gloves and, and, and just sort of lift off the cover and then very preciously lift them out and then try not to break them as we sing them um and and it's not how i think we keep classical music alive i think we have to you know take 
liberties with the music. Enjoy its potential for being something new, something new to itself that it wasn't yesterday. And you know what? You know, the, 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 the music is in the score, in the detailed notes and markings and phrasings of the composer's hand. That's never going to go away. That's not a subjective quality that the music has. There's always going to be the urtext reference available. So whilst we've got that, and we can always return to it, let's have fun with it. There are too many pieces that we hear over and over and over again. We're going into the Beethoven year next year, and it's going to be wall-to-wall Beethoven. Beethoven was so specific about marking his scores. You know, we, everyone knows the, 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 the scrawling and the scratching that he put on. And it's all there, and editors have, have you know, gone to great lengths to produce really detailed, really well-researched, beautiful editions of, of, of his symphonies and his piano sonatas, his songs, his whole oeuvre, his, the string quartets and everything. And why not with that? Let's tear up the rule book. You know, let, let, let's do something completely different with it. Let's juxtapose it. Let's pull the symphony apart, put other things in between the movements. Just have fun, do what you want with it. The music will never, ever, ever break under that uh, strain. You're saying that it's more robust than perhaps people assume classical music is yes yes uh, but i wonder whether that that uh that robustness and that that wanting to um experiment with it or to pull it apart or to do different things with it i wonder whether that isn't being communicated by those who who talk about classical music i wonder whether there is a, a significant number of people who still talk about it in these venerated rarefied terms and whether now, that needs to change well i think that's a very good point and you know radio three is actually doing a very good job of reinventing itself certainly and 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 they have wonderful new initiatives on sunday evening they have that beautiful radio program of words and music um you, you must know the program mm. i mean and they sort of go for a walk for a walk through a subject um and juxtapose readings with you know very good actors reading texts and then really interestingly selected and a broad spectrum of music that sort of bounce off each other and and it, i i call it intelligent programming and and i'd like to see more of that in the concert hall but there is a, there is a thing going on at the same time, which is there is this this assumption that we can't talk intelligently about the art form in case it frightens people off. Yeah, well, I've, but but it doesn't seem to stop it, people from doing it, does it? No, no, fair enough. I mean, I, when you listen to some radio free programs, which have been there for a long time, and uh, the way they talk about. You know, new recordings, for instance, and and I listen to it, and it's so flowery the way they talk about it. And you go, really? What what is this peppery quality you're hearing in the music? I don't Purple. get. Purple. Yeah, okay. I don't get that at all. Okay, so you, yeah, you you hear, I get the impression you hear what I'm saying. Uh, that's great. I didn't expect us to go in that direction. I've written notes about other things. The thing I wanted to flag first of all was that I very nearly came here with my Brompton. Oh, we could have had two Bromptons together in the same room. I love my Brompton. Do you? I really do. Do you? Yeah, I do. Yeah. Do it's my not... second. I had my first one stolen. Oh. And uh, I parked it outside the Barbican when I went to yeah, went to an LSO. It. You mean you locked it up? I locked it up. <laughs> um, outside the Barbican, went to an LSO concert and came out an hour later and it was gone. Bastards. Um, Bastards. I know Bastards. And uh, I went to buy another 
with my insurance money. And I said to them, what lock do I need to make sure this doesn't get stolen a second time? And they said, don't buy a lock, just take it with you everywhere. Mm. And that's did what I did. Did you not think to take it with you? Sorry, did you? No, I didn't. Did you I thought I locked it, it now. Oh. No, but I do now. I am judging you. Um, <laughs> uh, but I still have my, my, my present Brompton. Did you feel a sense of loss when it was stolen? I did. Like you had an emotional connection with it? Yeah, I did, yeah. Yeah, I did when I had my bike stolen. I just feel a little bit vulnerable on it, a bit a bit rickety on it. Yes, those small wheels are a bit under you, aren't they? Yes, and I feel like a child. <laughs> but maybe that maybe that sort of uncovers other issues, which are not really for the scope of the podcast. Uh, but that said, uh, it was it was rather nice to see another Brompton owner arrive, and I'm glad that I only came on the train. I'm very proud of my new hat. Helmet, I think they called. <laughs> helmet. I think they called helmet. Although somebody said I don't like the police were in village people the other day. Uh, I was going to say more German than, yeah. than village people. <laughs> yeah. but, but Ein Helm. Yes, yeah, slightly severe. Um, uh, the, uh, we should talk about the thing that you're doing, which is Mithisilemnis. Well, this, is, this leads on from the conversation we, we, from what we were just talking about, you know, museum art form, museum music. Um, and so what I'm trying to do with the Barquois at the moment is trying to get prize them away from being from venerating the works that they perform and just having fun because within that choir you have this wonderful resource of intelligent people and they're they're really so broad in that choir. You have two Supreme Court judges, for example, uh, one of which is Jonathan Sumption. He just did the Reef lectures, and then Robert Carnworth as well. Um, but we so this started when I was in a planning meeting a couple of years ago, and I said, "Why don't we ask the people in the choir what we should be doing and how we should be performing these works?" Oh God, I can feel my heart race. And <laughs> the people, the professionals who run it, <laughs> don't ask the choir. No, they were fantastic. They said, "Do it." Oh, okay, right. So I stood up, found myself half an hour later standing up in front of the choir and saying, I want volunteers from you to help me plan what we're going to do for Alexander Nevsky. And 16 people stepped forward. Archivists, we had a presenter, we had uh, from the BBC, we had a writer, we had a historian, we had um, a playwright, Uh which was great. We had a director, theatre director, very young, straight out of university, but budding, very talented girl. Um, just 16 people like that. It was the ideal set of talents and, and sort of professional backgrounds for what we needed to do. And I said, Alexander Nevsky, um, I want within the next two weeks a treatment for how you're going to do it. And they ran with the ball. They had a few meetings, came up with, with great ideas and started to consolidate them. And of course, as, as, in, as is always the case, the idea started off very complicated and then became very simple. And uh, the simple idea was to have... As is always the case. As is always... <laughs> you, do you know what you're saying, really? As is always the case. Well, if you're carrying something out, yes. You, you, right. you know, your ambition, especially the first time, gets the better of you. And you think, we could do this, we could do that. We yes, could do that's everything. We throw everything yes, into the yes. pot. But you're saying that but that isn't what the, happened. The practicality of it... Uh, was the, the well, the, the practicality rules, and we realised that we didn't have that much money, we didn't have that much time. And the simple thing was to get one actor, David Bamber, to come along and be Prokofiev. And he had a telephone, and he talked, we heard one side of the conversation that he had with Sergei Eisenstein, 
about the toings and froings, the flip-flopping, the political situation with Germany and how they were going to sort of cut the film and the music in order to portray whether we were friends with Germany or we were enemies right. of Germany's. Okay. And so it's, it was a fascinating three-year inception for, 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 for the score and the film. And the amazing thing about it was that Eisenstein and Prokofiev took it in turns to call the cuts. So sometimes Eisenstein would cut to the music that Prokofiev wrote for him, and sometimes Prokofiev would write the music to the cut. Right. Um, so it was a really balanced and sort of even footing for both of them. Great professional respect. It was beautiful to put that in front of the audience. And then we actually translated Nevsky's speech that comes later on, uh, just before the sort of battle. It's a, it's a propaganda film. It has strong parallels with Henry V. Um, and there's a big speech that Nevsky makes just before the big battle scene on the ice. And, uh, and he rallies the troops. And we got Hilary Summers, who was a soloist for the performance, um, to say this rousing, rousing speech. And it was beautifully put together and really well realised. And they did it with lighting and they did it with footage of the original film as well that they got permission from, from the BFI to do. And that was a great when effort. Was this? this was two years ago in the Festival Hall. Wow. We should do it again because yes, not enough people saw it. I yeah. didn't see it and I want to see it. Are you aware of the way in which you describe things? Of the way in which I describe yes. things? No, why? Well, just that you told me something that I didn't expect to hear and you told it to me in such a way that I think, how the hell did I miss that? Yeah, well... So, did... you know, that suggests that you're good at marketing. Well, we're, we're learning. It's, uh, and it's, the important thing is that it's, this doesn't come from me, this initiative. I keep opening the door for the meetings and for the ideas with the choir and then I just say go do you you know because they're far more capable of doing it than I am yes but you're now being self-effacing which I find terribly annoying (laughs) (laughs) Um, but what prompted you to take the route that you did or were you just telling me a story what prompted me to take the route what with the bar choir as in you know why don't we ask the choir because that that was the moment that made me go Well, I really, I think, I'm a, I think there is a voice in music that isn't being tapped into, and it's the audience. And I think and the amateurs of a choir um, are as much audience as they are performers, um, because they're enthusiasts and they're not professionals. And I, I really believe that amateurism in music is as is becoming a, a very important resource within it for inspiration. So I have dear friends who are um, very keen supporters of an amateur music, uh, amateur orchestra here in London, um, and they do a music camp out in Buckinghamshire as well, religiously, and down in Cornwall. And I've been now with them to a couple of performances, and I've even sung with them, um, the Britain Serenade and Les Illuminations mm-hmm. of Britain. And... Uh, it is the most beautiful day when I go there because they're so focused and they're so keen. The standard is is very good by the end of the day because they work so hard. Um, it's like a youth orchestra for adults. Yeah, right. It's it's a there's something in this. It's often what professional music making lacks is passion. Um, what it has in spades is capability, and th- especially in this country the, uh, the, the, the sort of academic wherewithal to make sense of a piece in almost no time whatsoever 
to read the music, assimilate it, and then perform it in a in day, in a couple of rehearsals. Miraculous. But in order to make that business model work, they have to work so hard. They have to work you know, every day, two sessions, and sometimes a performance on top of two sessions. And, of course, it leaves performers feeling tired and jaded and also out of love with the music. And what you get from the people who go to a music camp, who do it on their holidays, who give up their holiday time from their jobs to go and play in an orchestra, um, is that joy of music and the celebration and the sense, sense of achievement. And, you know, it just indirectly, for me to be part of that, to see that, brings music back to life. Um, and, and all, yeah, great privilege to go and do it with them. Uh, it's It's... I really think it's, um, as I say, a, a voice within music that is under-listened to. Uh, you've told me about the Bach Choir. I, unless I have got my emails confused, I also think that we're talking about Mrs. Slemness, are we not? So, Mrs. Slemness, are, on the we? 28th of this month, which is June 2019, um, we are going to be in the Festival Hall doing a performance of... Beethoven's Mrs. Solemnis, uh, which was finished in 1824. I really wouldn't and he, say it like that because I'm not he, going to be able to confirm that. He planned it for the enthronement of the Archbishop of Austria, who was his friend, uh, Ferdinand. No, Friedrich. Anyway, he was his friend. And he was... <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Beethoven also taught him the piano. Um, and... We are going to explore in this performance deafness and music. We're going to talk about Beethoven's deafness because he was stone deaf at the time that he wrote it and at its first performance, which was three movements, the Kyrie, the Credo and the Agnus, uh, in a performance outside of the church because he didn't get it done in time for the enthronement of his friend whatever his name was and uh, <laughs> and are you feeling uncomfortable <laughs> I am I'm going to look it up if you don't mind no, it's fine it's fine the details are not important I'm interested in the event though he, he I didn't realise that he was stone deaf yeah uh, but you are going to have it signed Is that we are you're going to have it signed yeah so uh, we are going to have um, Paul Whisker come and not just sign it but talk about the meaning of music for people who are hard of hearing mm. um, so the, what, the extraordinary fact around this is that there are 11 million people in the UK who are registered with hearing impairment um, which is kind of incredible um, so that's one in six people mm. and if you think that means there are one in six people who don't have music in their ears. But they get a lot of joy from it all the same. And a lot of it will be a lot of you know, people who have hearing issues um, are, are, are or have been themselves musicians and are very familiar with the music and will know Beethoven's Mrs. Lemnis. And so even with just the demonstration of the music and the explanation of the words through signing 
And also, I, know, I don't know if you've been to a signed performance. Only one, and that was a sometime 80th at the province a few years ago. Which was Paul Whitaker. Oh, was it? Okay. Yeah. And I remember sort of, sort of being slightly, slightly bemused by the presence of a signer because my assumption had been that if you are deaf, then you wouldn't go to a concert. Yeah. And, that, and that's, a, that's just a, an assumption that I hold. Yeah. For right or for wrong. I mean, the, I, I have done performances in the past at ENO and at the Royal Opera um, with, with signers, and it doesn't occur to me anymore that this is something that, that, that comes with a raft of questions. I actually, you know, I, I like the people who do it, mm. and they're also very, very sort of, they're a good spirit around the theatre, so they're always nice nights because of that. Um, but I, 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 you know, this is perhaps a, so. It's not the the issue is not that the signing is done. The issue is that people might not go because of it. Either those who are who have hearing and, uh, and but also those who are given the opportunity to go to a concert, but. Uh, I'm talking about people with a hearing impairment, um, but would go or not go, I mean, because they think, well, it's music and, and, yes. and you know, they, they should give it a try. And I know this, this has been a question for ENO that they do it in order to sort of box tick for Arts Council England. It is a requisite thing that they have to do. And it's not unusual for six people with hearing impairments to go. Um, but, it, yeah, that's six I see it as a sign of inclusion. good people. Aside from, aside from however you interpret that Arts Council uh, requirement, yeah. actually, even if only six people go, the sign is a sense of inclusion. Yeah, absolutely right. Yeah. And there is a, and, uh, inevitably there is a nice tie-in with the idea of Beethoven being deaf when he wrote yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. Because when I hear Mr Solemnus, I hear... Shrill. It's a shrill piece. It's rich and it's complex, and there are some fugues that go on. I'm going to use the J word. A a rip roaring harmonic journey, which is um, sort of daunting and, and 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 invigorating, but uh, bewildering actually yeah. at times. And that's not to say that it's not. It it can't. It's difficult to listen to. That's not. That's not what my point is but just that actually there are some really surprising elements in it yeah I mean I, I had this awful moment in um, not awful but it, it was an embarrassing moment in New York when I went to see a performance of it and it was the orchestra uh, revolutionaire romantique of uh, John Elliott Gardner and afterwards, there was a reception. I went along and, and I said, gosh, we, and it was a stunning performance of the piece. It's not a piece that I had ever heard in performance. I had only performed it. And, then, and I realised that there are two dynamics to the piece. There's the one as the performer, where it's really exhilarating, really beautiful, an incredibly well-structured and, and pointed piece. And then there's that of the audience, which is, it's a sort of... Phil Spector wall of sound yes, it is. that you get. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, there is blocks yes. of sound that go along high and low all, all the time. And the, the soprano line just sit around an A all night. 
uh, A, B flat, because the piece is mostly in sort of D major, D minor. And, um, wow, it's wearing. It really is. It's an hour and ten minutes of, of very difficult ear-splitting soprano. <laughs> yeah, lines. you're really telling it. You're really telling it, Tony. Yeah. <laughs> so, but I think that's an interesting quality of the piece. I think that's, you know, Beethoven writing a piece that gets through, you know, to his, his him, that he can hear in yeah. his mute sound world um, on the page. Were they, was it, to, it must have been towards the end of his life, was it before the, the, the late string quartets or after? No, it's, I think the late string quartets, no. So the late string quartets were commissioned by uh, Nikolai Galitin and uh, he actually brought about the first performance, full performance of the Missus Solemnis in St. Petersburg. Um, but the, he was his sort of late life patron and it was after the writing of, of this. So I think he, they, they kept, he died in 1827 and I think that, that came in after 1824. So, yeah. I remember studying it at university and being hugely intimidated by the work just for actually for the, for the reason that you described that it was just something, it felt to me like it was something that was done to you. Musically, yeah. Yeah, as a member of the audience, sit down, shut up, pay attention. It's going to be done. So, so this is the thing, and I, I said to John earlier, you know, I, I find it, I, I didn't know it's a very different piece to listen to from the one that I perform. And John Elliot was, he, he was confused by this. He was very nice <laughs> about it, but he said, just, just hold on here. Oh, sit down. Oh, I'm going to sit down too. Everybody, everybody, oh. gather around him. He sort of set up this. He created a moment. A moment, and, and we had to sort of have this open debate about the piece. And <laughs> wow. you know, wow. John Elliott's like he's the most marvellous talker, and he's an incredibly intelligent and forthright man. Um, but so I, I really didn't want to. I, 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 mean, didn't want to argue I, I had nothing to, to argue about, you know. How long did this moment go on for? It felt like about a decade. Right. But it was, <laughs> in truth, no more than a minute. Oh, I see. Okay. Right. Yeah. Because I killed it, I, was, I just oh, I don't know. I'm no. bailing out. I'm <laughs> yeah, bailing out. Yeah, I haven't got it. Not, uh, what were, what are the main differences from from when you're singing it? Then is it just that you know the moments where you're in it, and you're only focused on? Well, well you have to concentrate when you're singing it because it is quite a sort of uh, it is a piece you have to concentrate on. So you listen to it in a different way. Um, you you see the perspective, the sound perspective, as an audience member, which you don't when you're in the orchestra. Um, you just sort of hear the detail and the wonderful sort of linear writing that, that, that he's able to do. Um, but what I got in the Carnegie Hall was this wall of sound, as I say. Um, very, very different piece. What are you doing next? I'm doing uh, lessons in uh, Love and Violence of George Benjamin. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is going to be in St. Petersburg at the White Knights Festival. Um, and we're taking it with uh, the LCO, um, and I've never been to St. Petersburg before. I've never sung a George Benjamin piece, um, and I'm looking forward to it very, very much. And then after that, I've got a sort of lots of travelling to do this summer. I'm going to America a few times. Um, I'm going to Romania to Bucharest to do Gluck, Iphigenie en Torhid, um, and then I'm going to Madrid to go and do, uh, I think, Beethoven, Mrs. Lemnis came. Do you enjoy the travel? I do. I really do. What do you enjoy most about it? Well, I've tailored my life so that I can enjoy it. Um, I don't have a family and I I don't have um, anyone to walk away from. 
Um, so I sort of feel the freedom of, of, of the possibility or the possibility of the freedom that my, my, my work has given me. I relish the, 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 the movement that I have around the globe because it's always to wonderful cities. You know, classical music can take a lot of... They're like Formula One teams. They just hoover up money. Um, <clears throat> and so they tend to only be put on in sort of rich, important capitals and regional capitals of the world. And so, yeah, my life is spent in, in wonderful, exhilarating cities. And, you know, I love going to museums and art exhibitions and taking in culture. So I, find, I sort of spend my free time doing that kind of thing. Your response is uh, surprising. Most people go, oh, well, you know, I don't like that. I get very tired. And, I mean, I get very tired when I'm told. Uh, but I didn't expect you to sort of say, actually, no, I really enjoy it. No, it's the adventure. I really, it's wonderful. I love it. Um, and the food. <laughs> Amazing. Okay, you're big on food. Does oh, that suggest that you cook or you just want to I cook? I love cooking. You? I'm a, an adventurous cook. Um, and, when you uh, say adventurous, well, I'll, I'll you try. I'll, I'll, get, I'll turn my hand to anything. I'll, right. I'll really give anything a go. Anything that you won't eat? No. Oh. Well, that's sort of brought that part of the conversation to an end. I seem to be. Um, <laughs> I, I seem to be going more and more to a, um, a less meat is um, that a, diet. Is that a lifestyle thing? Is that a sort yes, of it a is. political thing? Yeah, no, it's it's a combination of the two things. Yeah, eating more healthily, but also with an eye on um, on a better future. Do you find that difficult? Is that was that is that an no, easy it's choice. No, it's it's no, it's uh, it's just a natural development. I find myself often going for the vegetarian option these days. Uh, is there anything... Uh, you may be surprised to learn that we covered everything that I wanted to cover. No, um, really? We really have. Uh, it doesn't normally take this short amount of time. Is there anything else you'd like to tell me that I haven't asked you? Yeah, well, I mean, I can tell you anything <laughs> you like. I mean, you know... Tell me three surprising things about you. OK, all right, let me try. Uh... Um, three surprising things. Okay, I'm, I'm, I love cars. You I'm love mad cars? about cars. Okay, that's number one. Um, it's difficult, isn't it? It's difficult. It is, yeah. yeah. You thought it was easy. You went into this bit thinking, oh, that's really straightforward. It's not that, is it? Uh, I'm not going to tell you that. Okay, fine. I so, can't tell you that. Okay, fine. All right. So I'm telling that thought to go away. Yep. Um, but we've still got two more to go. Yeah, yeah. I think I'm a better singer than I was before I was sick a, year, a few years ago. Um, it's been a long time. And there's a sort of decade of uh, difficulty for me. And I've had to relearn to sing from scratch. And I think, and I didn't ever think I was going to say this, but I think I'm now, I sort of, I told myself all the way through the period that as long as I'm becoming a better singer, then I can hope and live in hope and feel positive about things. As long as the trend is improvement. And it was. And I think, because I've learned to really analyse what I do, I've, I've punched through the place where I was as a, as a singer and sort of come, come to another side, come to another level. And I feel very good. And I, it was very difficult to me, for me to get there. I didn't enjoy singing for so long. Um, 
Well, as in after you had, when after you'd recovered, you didn't enjoy seeing yourself. Yeah, right. yeah, because it just didn't feel the feel the same, and it just didn't. I, you know, I sort of lived in so much anxiety through singing for so long that I educated myself out of love with the whole thing, and now I go into performances and I don't have to worry. I don't sort of sweat it anymore. I just open my gob and out comes my voice again and without the anxiety as I say and the preparation the crazy warming up that I used to have to do just to get to a rehearsal at 10 o'clock in the morning and I'd wake up at 5 and I'd start singing and get my voice you know hammer my voice in order to just get it over the doormat in the morning um, and I don't have to do that anymore what prompted the change in thinking what was the change such a physical change I just it just happened and, but it was all to do with education, re-education, reconnecting with it, trying different things. But it's also the neurological development, because for a long time I had neuropathy, which meant that I had no physical sensation around my throat area. <clears throat> now the, you know, the, the nerves have reconnected, grown back, redeveloped, and I now have all the sensation again. And so I'm able to take the lessons I've learned over the last years and take them sort of in a, in a better and more advanced way than so, I did. So you had the neuropathy as a result of the operation. Of the so I had a, a big, big uh, operation. As you can see, this scar that runs down the right side of my, no, my neck. Um, and it's, uh, I had the cancer in there. And um, it was quite, quite advanced. And it put me out of action for quite a long time. And then I went back to work too soon and started to sing on big stages and um, in big roles and I just didn't have the wherewithal to do it Um, and I managed to hang on I survived and I was never fired but I did a lot of damage to my reputation um, in that time and I just just as a performer not not as a person no no, I would hope not (laughs) that would be awful yeah quite and now are you being are you is that is that the story that you tell yourself? Or yeah, is that yeah. what people told you? No, it's, I mean, it's, it's just true. Um, and now I'm in, in, in a position to be able to turn that around and, and sort of reprogram um, where I am, who I am, and what I'm doing. Do you remember where you were when you realised it's all going to be all right? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's quite recent. Um, I, I was... Uh, I was aware last autumn when I was performing somewhere that I was in Houston, Texas and I was going to a performance and I wasn't nervous about it I just thought, it's fine, I'll just open my gob and my voice will come out and that had probably been the status quo for some time before then but I'd only just noticed that I was no longer sweating the performance process and yeah, that that was a breakthrough moment since then, it's been sort of fairly plain sailing, and I've been back to enjoying it. And what was the feeling at the time? Well, um, pride, but but not you know sort of ugly pride, but but a sense of um, of well done, of you know um, hanging on and surviving, and that it was all worth it. 
You've been listening to the Thoroughly Good Classical Music Podcast, available on Spotify, iTunes, and Audio Boom. To get in touch, tweet at Thoroughly Good, post a message on the Thoroughly Good Facebook page, or email john.jacob at thoroughlygood.me.